Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Good morning, Renee. Good morning, Caitlin. How are you, mate? I woke up and the first thing I did was checked the Roland Garros app, got out my laptop, and turned on my television and immediately immersed myself in a three-screen experience because Roland Garros is my Christmas. Totally. I love this tournament so much. It has so many issues, downsides. A lot of people do not like it at all. Uh, I won't name names about who those people might be. But for me, there's nothing like turning on the TV, watching a Sunday Grand Slam start, and just day one massive carnage with 20 matches simultaneously to watch. It is, it's like Christmas morning. I love it. I absolutely love it. I, I, I don't have the same amount of passion as you, for the French in particular. I have the same amount of passion for every Grand Slam. Yeah. There's no... There's no I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe Wimbledon is a little bit more like I get super excited about it. I don't know why. It's, look, to be honest with you, I'm also on site at every Grand Slam. Um, I haven't been on site at the French for a while because, you know, ESPN doesn't cover it. So I was supposed to be there this year with Sam Stoza coaching and I was super jacked to be there because I also love Paris. Like it's literally one of my favorite cities in the whole world. Uh, especially in summer. But uh, alas, Sam, unfortunately, is injured, and so therefore no Paris for me. So I'm sitting here on my couch with you doing our pod. <laughs> I mean, there pretty... I mean, there are worse places I could be. Yeah, there are equivalent places. Uh, I just feel bad because usually the um, first week of Roland Garros is mired in rain and cloudiness, and the weather famously is sort of uh, very prickly over there that this time of year. It looks beautiful and sunny, and here in New York we're having dismal 50 degree rainy weather so the, the sunny clay courts on my tv screens multiple um look extra enticing this morning do yeah. you want to talk about um why sam specifically is not playing this tournament well she decided to fall off a ladder oh, yeah. and uh landed on her foot and uh clearly thankfully uh didn't land on her head so it could have been worse uh, anyway sure. she bruised her foot pretty badly and uh, had had a bit of problems getting back on court without pain and so We'll be starting on the grass together, so I'll be leaving for London on Saturday, and I'll be going straight into the bubble and all that sort of stuff, and I'll be back on your screens for ESPN at Wimbledon. So, uh, yeah, anyway, we are sitting in my apartment, and we are currently watching Dominic Team's match. Uh, we witnessed Naomi Osaka win her first round, so when this pod comes out, uh, it'll be Monday, and obviously uh, play starts at the French on Sunday because they need a little bit of extra money in their pocket. <laughs> Um, and so Naomi has won her first round, interestingly enough, with all the stuff that's been going on. And uh, we wanted to get into that a little bit. What yeah, are your thoughts? That's a good place to start. I have so many thoughts about this, and I've tweeted about it and read everybody's hot take about it. And as somebody in the media, I have a very particular point of view. It might not shock anybody. Hearing pre-match, pre-tournament, that she was announcing that she wasn't going to be doing any post-match press conferences was a bold shot across the bow. Now, it is somewhat common for players to skip post-match press conferences. We've been watching Venus, in particular, do this for years and years and years. Serena does it on occasion, and Novak Djokovic will skip them here and there. But to do it in a premeditative manner, talking before the tournament and sending an email to the organizers and posting a notes app on social media channels was uh, a big, big story. And when it first came out, I thought, oh, that's interesting. She's just giving them a heads up as opposed to when the players just decide not to do it. I remember a, a match, Ben Rothenberg talking about watching Serena 
I think in Miami losing and just literally going from the court to her car and driving back to Palm Gardens. So oh. like, you know, it happens all the time. Trust me. It, 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 this is what makes me laugh is that I cannot tell you how many times players have bagged press and said no and just left, mm-hmm. um, knowing full well that they were going to get a fine. But you never hear about it in the right. press, right? Unless the press writes, oh, we requested X and X didn't come to the post-match press conference. They would never do that because they have other things they can write about or they'll have to actually write about the match without actually asking players. So it happens, guys, it happens all the time. Players are notorious at bagging press conferences and leaving. Now, having said that, I don't think that's great. It's not great for the sport. Um, I think it's important to contextualize some stories that um, the journalists are writing. Also for television, we like to pick up grabs of what players say in the post-match interview. I mean, listen, Caitlin, I certainly... I see both sides of this um, as now somebody who works in the press and who does like to hear from players after matches. Obviously, I do a lot of post-match interviews on court. But the press the press rooms are a little different. They can be a little squirmy sometimes. And you can also get a lot of questions thrown at you in there that are just so ridiculous. Well, I want to really expand on that because that's been my experience on the grounds at tennis tournaments, being largely in the press room. And I don't. I'm not talking about on the broadcast wing of things, although sometimes I come and visit you and say hello, but I'm talking about in the media center, which is largely print and digital journalists who are sitting at their desks watching tennis, largely on screens, uh, getting a couple of satellite feeds and writing a lot of match recaps. I have a lot of things to say about that, and I've been very vocal about how much I think that dusty apparatus needs updating and refreshing, and I have some ideas about how we can do that because I think this is a great moment to do this, but I want to note two things. When I first saw this, like I said, I kind of shrugged it off and you were like, oh, we should talk about this on the pod. And I was thinking, eh, how big of a deal can this be? She's just announcing something that players do sort of de rigueur and she's just kind of making a, giving them a heads up. The amount of traction that this has gotten outside the tennis world, outside of our usual bubble is profound, largely because of who she is, Naomi Osaka. This news about her boycotting press comes, you know, the same week that the official earnings of her, you know, $50 million plus endorsement year come which, you know, has some implications about, you know, being the highest paid female athlete ever. Cha-ching. Cha-ching and skipping press. But I do want to ask some questions that I'm not sure that I know the answer to, which is she made very clear that she's not doing post-mass press conference appearances. Do you know or has she said if she's doing interviews with press during the, during, during the fortnight? Is she doing on-court interviews? Because there's a lot of ways that journalists get material from these athletes. Obviously, before the tournament at their press day, they obviously can request an athlete to appear in a press conference. The bigger ones have sort of an obligatory press conference afterwards. But also, there's a number of opportunities that journalists and storytellers and media all have to get access to these folks. And I'm curious that we know exactly what she intends to do here. We don't know what she's going to do? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, do we know? I mean, because... No, well, look... I don't think she's doing any of the press after the match as far as going into press com- into the press room. Right. You know, we, we go into the press room or they're requested to go into individual rooms for individual mm-hmm. particulars like Wow Wow or whoever's covering it for Japanese television in particular. She, I don't think she's doing any of that at right. all. So if Tennis Channel was like, hey, we want to have you up to the booth no, after the match. No, she's not doing any of that. She had this, this blanket statement sort of includes that. She's not doing any of that. Here's what's interesting about what we saw today because mm-hmm. we are starting recording this today and putting it out tomorrow. She did do a post-match interview. It was very brief from what we've heard. Um, We didn't see it because Tennis Channel decided they didn't show it. Now, see, that's something that I don't understand. Like, this is your one and only opportunity. Um, And often, uh, not always, most of the time, like ESPN will always show, and usually Tennis Channel does as well sometimes, is show the post-match interview afterwards. Um, It was going to be, and it was with Fabrice Santoro, um, it's either with Fabrice or with Marianne Bartoli. She's been doing it over the last few years as well. They usually show that and then they bring them up to the desk so they can get their own sort of take on the match by asking their own questions. But I don't understand why Tennis Channel didn't show her one and only time she's going to actually talk about the match. It it's may a, have only been one or two questions. Maybe, but... but it's a baffling choice because I was seeing on Twitter, obviously people who are not watching us on Tennis Channel were translating some of the quotes. I, I think they were pretty banal and I don't know that they, you know, obviously it wasn't like a particularly hard hitting interview with Fabrice Santoro. But sitting here watching the Tennis Channel feed, you see Fabrice Santoro with his microphone He's in negotiating hand. with He's her. He's chatting with her about, you know, is she comfortable? Obviously there's there's some kind of agreement and you see him walking towards her, which obviously means we're about to get 
some quotes, which a lot of people were like up in arms, like, oh, this is outrageous. And then they don't show it. You're like, come on, you dummies. Like this is your, if you're going to be all in your feelings about the press not getting access, show the one time that Fabrice Santoro is going to be able to talk to her uh, possibly for the entire two weeks of the tournament. Like uh, what, what are we doing you, here? I got to tell you, I, we were sitting here together and I was like, I cannot believe they just went away from the court. It was a dumbfounding to me. Anyway, besides that, um, editorially, that was not a great choice. Oi. Um, secondly, it's also been a polarizing co- situation. For Let's sure. face it. Yeah. I, you and I can honestly say, and I can say from my own experiences with players that I know that are still on tour, they're not exactly like, uh, you know, getting behind the Naomi Osaka, good for you to ban the... The, the press mm-hmm. at all they're, no. they're actually a little bit perturbed about it yeah um, it seems like eye roll emoji would be a good way to describe what we've heard from the ground from numerous players we did hear an interesting take though from um we're not going to throw anybody under the bus uh, today that's very unusual for me but we're not going <laughs> to throw anyone under the bus about who said what and what said who and the conversations that you and i both had with players but one player said something really interesting that i thought oh that's actually a great idea for naomi mm. which was Yes, saying if this was such a political stance, if she wanted to use this to reform the press, which is what a lot of people with a lot of different projections are putting onto her. And to be clear, like Naomi Osaka maybe just is not wanting to talk to the press because she doesn't have a great record on the clay and grass wings and she's just decided it's not that helpful and she'll take the fine. There might not be a greater context to this. You know, the idea of like being a black woman, being, you know, confronted by a largely white male press room, which I have a lot of thoughts about might not be on her mind. It might not be, you know, I want to talk to Japanese press or not, and I feel too much pressure coming from my home country. It might not be that. But an interesting idea was, if this was about taking a stand, if this was challenging an archaic notion, I think the idea that we heard would be very cool, which is not only would she pay her own fines, but she would agree to pay the fines of anybody who skipped press during this tournament as a way to sort of make a statement. God knows she could afford it, um, you know, and if that is on her mind, I think, you know, she's welcome to do that. I, I wonder, you know, I don't know if Stuart, her agent, listens to this podcast, but, you know, an, an idea just for your consideration, because it would really be then a political statement. Again, we don't know whether she, this was political or just personal, and maybe the two are inseparable, but an interesting reaction to sort of say, well, this is I, a way to put your money where your mouth is. I thought that was an actual brilliant idea <laughs> to say, you know, listen, players, we've all been there, right? We've all been there after a match. The last thing that you want to do is talk when you lose. And obviously Naomi wins a lot, so she has to deal with this sort of stuff after winning. But um, it's more about the, the, the issue of, particularly when you lose, um, nobody wants to do press. There's not one player that I can tell you that that would that given the choice, do you want to do it or not, would do it. Yeah. Okay. As we just spoke about Serena getting in the car immediately after a match and leaving. Like yeah. we all get that. Like I understand that feeling. It's just me of all people. I remember one time and I am like one billionth the the the, the personality of wanting to be heard from uh, of a Naomi Saka or a Serena Williams. I get it. But there was one time where, where I lost a, you know, with Lisa, I believe it was like a semi-final of a Grand Slam, and you know somebody asked us to do press, and I was like, fuck, fuck no, like you guys don't even want to talk to us when we win, yeah. and now all of a sudden we lose and you want to talk to us, and I said no. Ah. Um, I don't believe I was fined on that occasion because I think the person that that asked me that question sort of understood where I was coming from. <laughs> but in this, in this, in these instances, um, I can understand it. So, look, I hope Naomi doesn't continue to do this, I hope the questions are asked about why she's doing it yeah. more. And, and that's really I wanna... understanding it. Because honestly, Caitlin, we don't know. Nobody knows. We really don't know. Her agent probably knows. Her coach knows. Her team around her probably knows. She knows. But it could be a lot of things. There's a lot of things that could be going on here that we don't know about. And one thing that I can tell you is Naomi's never been okay with talking to the press because she's not super comfortable with confronting um, questions and people, and you came up with a really good thing earlier. She she really does think sometimes a lot about the question that's asked to her. Mm-hmm. She's an interesting character that way. But I just think she's very uncomfortable in those situations, and you have to ask the questions of why. And then you've got someone like an Ash Barty who goes in and says, "Nah, you guys don't affect me at all." Yeah. Um, well, but but having said that, 
Ash Barty quit tennis for two years because of the pressure on her. Yeah. Okay. So there, there is a, there is something that can be talked about here, and 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 pressure on players is enormous. I think I completely agree with and get and um, am part of the machine around tennis that is tasked with bringing in people to the to the tennis conversation to the tennis world. Media is a big, big tool to do that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very cognizant that, especially players who view this as part of the job, tend to view it in the sense that this is not only good for my personal brand, but this is good for the game of tennis. To get my quotes, my thoughts, my platform, and use those things to, to pull people in. Oh, and time out. Television pays a huge amount of money. Okay, and the reason these players are making $3.5 million to win a Grand Slam now, it's not because they're there's more people sitting in the stands. There's actually none at the moment with, is because of television. Right. They're paying upwards of 70 plus million dollars, million dollars, okay, every Grand Slam to put these matches right. on television. So these players are reaping the benefits of television paying an enormous amount of money. Television, of course, makes money from them, uh, having them on their screens and pay, um, you know, getting advertising and all that sort of stuff. It's, 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 a, it's a true business and it's a true collaboration. So... Uh, players need to understand that that's why they have to give those press conferences and they have to do those television because they're obligated to because they're really the ones that are paying their bills. Yes, I completely agree with that. And yeah, we're looking at a French Open that's not making the majority of its money on ticket sales. I mean, there are some spectators in attendance, but it's it's television. The television, completely right. Now, but I do want to make some some fine points about is all you're coming at this from the viewpoint largely of television, which is a giant part of the media apparatus, but not the one that is typically in those press rooms. And I want to specifically talk about those, not only because I know them, yep. but also because I sense, and the fact that Naomi gave an on-court interview after the match today would indicate that she's not necessarily boycotting every element of this. Or until we know more, I think we can can and should take this as largely a boycott of the post-match press conference. You've already talked about why some players don't like it. You've talked about why her in particular, with the way that she tends to sort of internalize some of these questions and really strive to give a thoughtful answer can end up, you know, cumulatively being very difficult to sort of carry over the course of a tournament or a season or a career. I specifically want to talk about some of the things that I see as being egregious within the press room, because I think, again, as you said, now is a great opportunity to ask why this is happening. And she's given us this opening, whether she intended to or not, to sort of say, does this still work? And if it doesn't work as well as it should, how can we make it better? That's really, truly where I see the the most interesting conversation happening right now because it's something that I've talked about well before this. From the first tournament that I got credentialed to, to, to today, I have such problems with the way that the day-in, day-out press corps, and again, I'm not really talking about TV so much as I'm talking about the print and digital reporters who sit in those media centers, don't leave the media centers, will go to press conferences, and some of them are really great professionals who ask the kinds of questions that get feature stories in the New York Times or get really interesting tidbits. You know, this is your Ben's, this is your Courtney's, this is your Reams, this is your Carol's. Like these are guys who cover the tennis every day of their lives, have a giant platform that they're providing information to. And, you know, if it's a question from Ben, you know, it's going to be kind of a stickler because he sees himself as a muckraker and tennis, frankly, could use more people like him. If it's a question from Courtney, she tends to be a little bit more sympathetic to the players, but she's trying to get into their emotional states. If you get a question from Reem or Carol, it's going to be maybe regionalized to the audience they're speaking to. I'm not really talking about them. I'm talking about the part-timers, the ossified men, largely, who are white, who maybe cover the sport a fraction of the year, who come into these press conferences, ask questions in, in at times openly misogynistic, openly racist, openly um, traditionalist in a way that makes it baffling as to how they got into the room in the first place. I'm talking about an Italian journalist like Ubaldo, who's famous for asking questions about women's appearances and p- people who don't get the result right and say, hey, Renee, how did it feel to lose today? And you'll sit there, did you watch my match? I, I won. I walked off with the, the win. Like, what match did you watch? And, and how is it that you got into this room? There's an anecdote that I like to refer back to because I can't stress enough how ossified and problematic these rooms are, especially in a day and age where you're getting the score from an app, you're seeing GIFs and reactions and quotes on Twitter, Players have their own giant social media platforms. And so if you're coming at it from an age when you were the only person who could get those players' quotes out, you were the only person who could get that match recap out, you were the only person who could give score updates, 
then I see the real utility of being there on the ground and being, you know, giving very, very basic information. That's no longer the case. And so how have you as a journalistic body, how have you evolved? What is it you're, you're doing? Why did you come to this place? Why did you fly to Paris to sit at the Grand Slam? And what are you using at your disposal, the materials to tell a story? Is it really necessary that you get a quote from a player in the post-match presser? Maybe it is, but I would argue not a lot of times. No, it's not. And moreover, if you're not taking advantage of being there, why are you there? And I am struck by this one instance that I had. The US Open is notorious in terms of their credentialing. A lot of these credentials are handled by the tournament. They tend to favor the people who've always been there. When you're applying for credentials, you can tick a box that says, I am a member of the International Tennis Writers Association, which is a ancient body based in um, London that, as far as I can tell, is entirely comprised of old, ossified, mostly white, mostly male press members. And they give you favor if you say that you're a member of this body. I sat next to a guy called Alex Jung, who writes for New York Magazine, a woman named Chloe Cooper-Jones, who's written for us at Racket, but also writes giant profiles like the one she did that was brilliant of Juan Martin Del Potro in GQ, and Gary Nathan, who at the time was working for Deadspin, now is a defector and writes our newsletter. All three of these journalists in their late 20s, early 30s, all people of color, all people who reach audiences well beyond the tennis confines. And they're sitting there watching Osaka Bagel Sasnovich in 2018 at Court 17. And I was like, hey, hey, guys, I didn't see you in the press room. Have you been here all week? Like, you know, why don't you meet me there? Let's hang out. My people. My people. And they said, no, we've all been rejected for credentials. And I was shocked because I could not believe. And I said, if you were to see the people who are in that press room, by and large, you would be baffled as to why you're relegated to sitting out here as a spectator. Again, I, I like going out and spectating matches. That's why I ran into them there. But you'd be baffled at who gets access and who gets to do this thing and you don't. And so that is a microcosm for me of what I've seen and what I've experienced. And what I talk about when I talk about the tennis press, yes, I have issues with some of the commentators. Yes, I think some of the broadcasts could be better. I mean, you said it no better than Tennis Channel cutting away from an on-court interview. That's just a baffling editorial choice. But what I'm talking about, because my world is print and digital and writing-centric journalism, I'm talking about the people who get access into that media center. And that's the people who are in those press rooms. And that is who, as far as I can tell, Naomi really, really intended to dodge. And those are the people who are really, really in their feelings right now. And I think it's really cool that we get to ask why. Yeah, I think, um, well said. Uh, I know that you're super passionate about this. We, we, you and I have talked about this on many occasions about some of the press core that are in those press conferences. And, you know, I've got my own stories about that. Um, certainly going into um, Wimbledon a few times because it's really easily accessible just to walk into the press room there and I've been asked to go in. So I don't double ask a question, for example, uh, of a player. It makes sense because it's already on film. You don't want to ask them the same question twice. You know, the people I were working for thought about that, you know, but some don't. Some just want to ask the same redundant question over and over and over. Um, so... My feeling was when I walked into those press, I'll sit in that press room and some of the questions that get thrown at these players are just so ridiculous and stupid. I saw a replay of one um, in Australia this year and, you know, Australian journalists, there are some really great ones um, and there are some that just don't care at all about Mm -hmm. tennis. They literally follow football all year long. They follow the AFL or rugby league or whatever it is. Um, They're typical blokes. They don't pay attention to tennis at all through the year and then all of a sudden the Australian Open rolls around and they are all of a sudden tennis experts. You know, and they go into these press conferences and they ask this, these questions and they, honest to God, don't even know half the players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't even know what it what it takes and the feelings and, uh, you know, a re- what a really great tennis question is. And uh, there's so many things that I could go on and on about and some of the redundant questions that they ask. And I'm like, wow. And the headlines drive me crazy. Yeah. You know, um, I went up at the press this year a little bit, um, the, the, the uh, print media in Australia, about some of the stuff that they were saying, particularly about Ash Barty and Sam Stoza, and I take offence to some of the things that they were saying, and they were dead wrong. Yeah. So those things, I can say that, but these players have to put up with that in the yeah. press room. So I think your point is to say, let's look at the people that are being put into those and let into those press conferences, and if they're completely, constantly asking ridiculous questions why isn't somebody in that room going yeah you're unacceptable anymore yeah. we're not going to allow you in here and the wta and atp need to protect those players for those reasons yeah let them ask questions and let, let the the i think if 
this were like any other sport where the body of, of reporters covering the sport, you look at basketball, you look at um, soccer, football, you look at NFL, you look, you look at a number of other sports. And granted, they don't have as many women, typically. So I'm not necessarily as familiar with the WNBA press pool and what the makeup of those, those reporters is. But I can tell you the, the role of the press is very clear. Everybody who gets let into an NBA press conference is at the very least familiar with all the digital social channels, familiar with the, the latest sort of political and cultural context in which basketball is being played. I'm, I'm painting with a broad brushstroke here, but having seen a lot of those press conferences in other sports, I can tell you they are night and day uh, uh, better than what tennis journalism on the, re- on the regular provides in those press conference contexts. And again, not every journalist, and a lot of them are there who are absolute pros who are doing incredible services to the sport and doing exactly as you say, which is broadening the conversation, bringing more people in, creating narratives and storylines that are additive, that help people contextualize what they're seeing. Because, you know, these tennis players don't have the benefit of having as strong a press corps as many, many other sports. And one of the ways I would like to take this opportunity, again, whether Naomi Osaka intended it or not, to say, let's take a look at this. If I were in charge of credentialing, I can tell you right now, I would revoke every single journalist's credentials and make them reapply and pay no weight to seniority, pay no weight to the prominence of a a publication. Because especially, as you said, a lot of people there are part-timing and maybe they come from a big publication, but they don't have any tennis context. And I would look a lot at who are the passionate bloggers, podcasters, creators who are really day in and day out familiar with this sport, who are not going to get in there and ask an outright offensive question. And if they do challenge the player and players should be challenged, then it's coming from a place of respect and at least a little bit of cultural understanding, because that is really what I think Naomi is pushing back upon. And if she's not, then I am, because I see it and I've seen it enough to want to say this system needs massive reform. And even if it's just this part of the press corps, let's, this is so easy to fix. And a a lot of it starts and ends with credentialing. So uh, let's put a button on the Naomi thing and saying, look, it's very polarizing. I would say half of the tennis world or world in general are not supportive of her Mm -hmm. in this situation. I would say the other half of the world is very supportive of her. I think you and I are coming from a standpoint, and I think we come from a really very broad standpoint from this. You come from print media. I come from being a former player and now in TV um, and rely on those quotes, and they're very important for contextualizing TV and print and all that sort of stuff. But I think the broad, broader picture here, whether Naomi is doing it for publicity or whether she's doing it for mental health or whatever she's doing it for, the bottom line is we need to ask the question why. Mm -hmm. And we also need to ask the question of, can we be better? Can tennis do better when it comes to media? And the, the overwhelming answer to that, whether you look at Naomi Osaka or anyone else, is yes, right. tennis media can do much better. And I think the bottom line is we need, as you said, we need we need different voices. We need people of color. We need uh, more women. We need, we need people that are super passionate about the sport that don't get a check based on just writing a couple of quotes and essentially writing the same thing over and over. Like right. AP, it's just the same thing. They put it in every paper yeah. and just change a few things here and there. And, and it's, just, it's, it's lazy journalism. And I, I, I want the journalists to be like either take be passionate about it. I know they're busy I know they're on deadlines 100%. but honestly don't have them out there at all yeah, you know exactly. and, and have somebody who is passionate about it be the one that's writing for everybody I don't know but we yeah. can definitely do a better well, job well while we're on the set let's move on from Osaka because I think we've said uh, what, enough enough but I do think there is a really good example of a presser today that, that illuminated some interesting stuff in a player that is helpful that does speak to why you do talk to players and get a little bit more context and who's also very comfortable talking to the press this yes. is somebody who did communications at college she is a good great talker 
and she's a super open person. So that's also a very different. They're very different personalities. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I'm talking about Danielle Collins, a young American who had very recently undergone uh, major surgery because of severe symptoms relating to endometriosis, had her first win back um, at a Grand Slam since having the surgery and won in a three-set battle and was asked specifically about what she's been going through, how her endometriosis was at first misdiagnosed and what she's feeling like now that she's had this surgery and specifically how her body sort of feels like her own again. And she gave, as you said, she's a communications major. She's super smart. She's a really, really um, uh, confident and authentic personality. And I think that comes through when you're talking to her in a pressure. And she'll say, a little crazy. And yeah, she's, she's can go into berserker mode in a, in a way that I absolutely love. Um, you know, Danielle was asked about this and gave really, really thoughtful answers. And, you know, the press corps handled it with, um, you know, dignity, empathy. Nobody was, you know, imagine getting asked about your period by, you know, an old man, which I have been in a tennis context. You know, why can't you play today? What are your, your, what you have your period? Uh, you know, this is th- how dick kicks came about. This is how dick kicks came about. But I think in this context, it was empathetic. It was sort of tell us what sort of symptoms you were experiencing. And Daniel Collins was able to talk about having been misdiagnosed, which we know is a huge problem for women, especially when they're dealing with, you know, um, menstrual or reproductive sort of issues. And she was able to sort of put this out there in a way that I think other people could not only understand what her experience as a tennis player was like, but also as a woman and, and having to advocate for yourself within the healthcare system. So there are great examples of what post-mass pressures can, can bring to, you wouldn't have gotten any of that from her match other than her sheer excitement and a classic trademark come on when she won the match. I'm sure that scream was heard, you know, entirely around the, around the, the world, around the world. But also there are, there is utility to this thing. So I don't think we should kill it outright. That's never been my position and it no. doesn't remain that, but let's use those moments with players and try to meet them where they are and get thoughtful answers that, that help, you know, un- people understand and, and yeah. come to the sport with greater, greater nuance and context, which no. that was a great example of. When I, when I had to pull out of the Olympics, um, the first time I played was because of that same issue and my period and I couldn't walk onto the tennis court. And it's one of the, you know, one of the saddest moments in my career. I was never asked about it. No one, you know, oh, Renee Stubbs pulled out because she's sick. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I had incredibly bad period pain and could not stand up for yeah. four hours. Right. So, you know, those are the things that don't get talked about. So, yeah, there is absolutely a time and a place to be able to talk about it, uh, talk about things after matches and get great, uh, you know, dialogue and quotes from players. And that was an example of when it is and, and it does work. And knowing who you're talking to. There are yes. players who, like Danielle, who are But Caitlin, that's super... the problem because you are dealing with press that follow tennis for three weeks a year sometimes yeah. or two weeks a year sometimes at Grand Slams and they have no idea about any of these players. They don't actually even try right. to, to find out. They just go in there, they see the score, they f- maybe hear something, uh, you know, from somebody else, and then they say, and I swear to God, they sit in these press conferences, they're like, oh, I guess I should ask a question. Right. No, you don't have to ask a question right. if you don't have a good question to ask. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I've watched a couple on Twitter. Some people have put some, you know, classic post-match interviews on on, uh, on Twitter, you know, and, and Roger Federer, after he lost to Novak Djokovic that one time when Novak was down a couple of match points and he hit two four, those, that forehand cross court, remember that classic. famous classic? And two reporters asked him the same question back to back. And I mean, of course, Roger Federer is going to try his best to answer it as well as possible, but even Roger was pissed. It's yeah. like, oh my God, do some homework, right. you know, on this. You don't need to ask, well, how did that feel when that forehand went past you? Well, how do you think it felt? It fucking sucked. <laughs> like, what do you want me to say about this? Right. And, you know, and, 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 and this year I didn't get onto that was Novak was asked when no, Nick Kyrgios said something about, you know, about controversially about Djokovic, you know, wanting to press people to like him and all this. Remember that? And, and a, pre, a guy in the press said, okay, so Nick Kyrgios was in here earlier and Novak said, basically, I'm not going to answer any of those questions. So you can ask the question, but I'm not going to answer it. And mm-hmm. the guy goes, okay, well, Nick said da-da-da-da-da-da-da and went into the question and then Novak goes, okay. Yeah. I mean, what is the point of asking that question right. when somebody has literally said to you pretty much what Naomi just did, but she didn't go into the room. Yeah. So I'm not going to talk about this and I'm not going to answer this right. question, so don't ask it of me. But they like to hear their own voice ask the question to these famous pay- people and players because they have to. Yeah. They have to answer the question right. technically. They don't have to answer the question, but they have to listen to the question. Right. And Naomi is saying, I don't even want to listen to the question. Yeah. It's not even worth my time. Here's yeah. the money. 
Well, that brings up another thing in press that I think could be reformed, again, starting tomorrow. When you get a transcript, when you're in the room, it's very clear who's asking questions. I've been in a number of those rooms. I never ask a question just because I'm there to observe and Racket isn't the kind of outlet that's going to use their, those quotes anyway. We're yeah. not access journalists. That's not something I find interesting. I find it very similar to the world I came from, which is the world of politics. Getting a quote from a politician and getting access isn't the and same as actually... And then putting it on the cover like it's the only thing that was talked about in the press. Isn't actually the best way to understand usually what's going on. Um, although sometimes it can be very additive. One thing that it was baffling to me about is they, there's a practice in tennis, not in any other sport that I know of, where the name of the journalist who asked the question is not put on the transcript. It is anonymized. And so you can guess who's asking the sexist, uninformed question. You can guess who's asking the thoughtful but maybe slightly probing question. You can guess at based on the verbiage or the linguist the language who who where these questions are coming from. But they don't you don't owe yeah. the, the, there's not a sense of accountability. So when you see somebody asking like Coco Goff was asked two days ago about how she relates to Serena Williams because they're both black. I mean that's not on its face the worst question I've ever heard of a woman of color in a press room, but it's it's highly inappropriate and also baffling. Serena Williams and Coco Goff have nothing to do with each other. It's certainly in this context, they're not slated it's to play like, each other. It's like, you don't go to, oh, there's, you know, da, 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 you're French and she's French. How do you feel about playing another French person in the final, possibly in the final? That's what the question right. was. And the question was, she's like, are you joking? Right. I guess it would be another, like, the, she answered it so beautifully. Coco though. answered Thank it well. God. And it's a good, it's a good example of somebody, again, who's comfortable in their own skin, who's talking about, you know, something that they're comfortable talking about. But I could also see and justify her being like, I'm not going to answer that question. And, but the stupid part is we don't know who asked that question. So yeah. we can't say, hey, you're applying for credentials for the next tournament. Turns out you're a bozo who can't handle the responsibility. So you get the axe. Somebody else who's yeah. going to... who's It's like what players get. You throw a racket, you get a warning. And then the next one is a point. And yeah. then the next one is a game. And well, then we've the just next one is figured out one. how to reform the press. So there you go. congratulations to us. Put the names of the journalists on the questions. Okay, so let's move on to the French Open. To the actual tennis. The thing that makes you light up with joy is seeing the terrible two... Uh, every day that you turn the television on and yes. you get to sit and watch it all day because they're playing into the night now. I love it. So um, let's talk about the women's. Yeah. Um, I think that it's interesting that uh, the favorite of the French Open is, of course, the defending champion in Schweitek. Do you Is she your favorite? She is my equal favorite. Okay. And I think that what's interesting is that I think my favorite, and I said this on uh, ESPN blog, is Ash Barty's my favorite. Sure. And I think the reason why Ash Barty's my favorite, first of all, she beat Schweitek a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I think that she, she knows how to win in that matchup, which really helps. I think that Schweitek, there's no question, was a little bit uh, perturbed in that match, and she didn't really control her emotions and mm. I don't think she played tactically a very smart match so she if she is going to learn from that loss then she could absolutely turn the tides I think they're equal favorites interestingly enough they're on the same side of the mm-hmm. of the draw which yeah. sucks uh it would have been nice to have them on opposite sides well so, yeah they're the two defending champions they're the two defending champions I mean you wouldn't normally say that because we usually only have one but yeah. given the they haven't lost a match year, there for a while neither of them have lost a match there for a while no so you know just looking at the draw obviously um uh, those two are going to probably meet in the semis, but you know, Gabinia Muguruza, who hasn't played for a little while, who you absolutely adore. I adore her. Um, she, she, she will be an unknown factor. I think if she can get through a couple of matches, um, she has a tough one in the first round against Kuschuk, who mm-hmm. can be a little dangerous on clay. I think that Gabinia will win. But, you know, if Gabinia can get through, she's certainly a player that is not afraid to win every. Or big matches yeah. and you know with Conchi um, back as her coach over the last year and a half it's certainly made a difference you know there's players like Sakari who are in that section of the draw I mean who are in that half as well as a little bit of an interesting first round is Kenan and Ostapenko yeah that's they kind of have a similar similar I mean, game similar game well, similar mindset not so much Kenan has a lot more variety she yeah. can throw in um, you know a few high ball I mean they Kenan are similar in shot. some some ways I mean Ostapenko likes to throw in the random drop shot as well. Both, I think Ostapenko's playing better, and I think she's in a uh, obviously a lot more emotional, stable than Kennan situation because Kennan's obviously had this riff and now you know has has let go of her father as a coach, and it's I think it might take her a while to sort of adjust to that. I I hope not. I really like the kid. I hope that she can get through. Um, but that's an interesting first round. They're all in the same section of I'm the draw. I'm truly watching for Kennan to play with what I hope starts to look like a smile on her face. I am so 
proud of her, honestly, not yeah. knowing all this spe- specifics, but right? knowing a little bit about more than was being reported about how dicey that situation was. I am really in awe of anybody who can create a safe boundary for themselves like that. And it was clear when you watched her play, you couldn't help but be sort of excited about her play, but maybe a little bit confused or baffled or maybe even upset by how it seemed like it was affecting her psyche. Yeah. And I hope for her sake, she can marry that amazing tennis with something sort of starting to approximate joy because she deserves it. And I like to, to think that tennis from a spectator perspective is watching people play a game at a very high level. And sometimes if it looks like torture, it's, it's sort of tough to watch. Yeah. It was, it looked like torture a few times. I mean, she cried before every match at the Australian open and she won the tournament. Um, <laughs> you know, in the, in the, also in that, you know, half of the draw is uh, Jenny Brady has been a little bit uh, a miss since making the finals, of the Australian open. She is split with her coach mm-hmm. as well. There's a few rumors going around about why um, I think that, uh, Sometimes, you know, to, 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 to fire a coach, uh, which she did, um, there has to be some kind of miscommunication there. That's, that's what it comes down yeah, to. Yeah, a maybe. mid-season rift like, that's been so successful is uncommon. Either he wasn't listening to her, um, she felt like, he felt like she wasn't listening to him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in the end, she's just decided to pull the plug because she's, in the end, the tennis player is the boss. Right. And she wasn't happy with the way he was handling her tennis and her maybe her physicality maybe she was you know carrying some injuries he was pushing her too much there's a lot that um that we don't really know about that um again somebody who i know pushes herself tremendously hard she is a workhorse jenny brady yeah. so for her, it's fun to see her deep in tournaments so obviously i'm i'm hoping and on clay yeah. i mean man with her game with that kick serve and that big serve she's very similar player to someone like sam stoza western grip. you know and that huge forehand Huge forehand. Yeah. So look, it's a lot like mine. She right? actually has a tough first round. She plays Sevastova, who can be very tricky yeah. at, at any time. Um, and she's in the same little small section as Coco Goff. And I want to throw a little side thing in there. Coco Goff is also trying to get on the Olympic team mm. now. After winning the tournament, her ranking's going up. So there's a lot on the line for these American players now to make the the Olympics because you've got Serena, you've Kenan. got Kenan, Brady, Brady. Goff. I mean, there's a lot of the players. Pagula is a contender. Pagula's in there. In there. How many a, can the U.S. take? Four, I right? believe four. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really it's really competitive. It's, it's an interesting because they picked the team after the French Open. So there's a lot on the line for these young um, American players, and it means a lot to them. While we're talking about Coco, um, I just want to say two things. Number one, her Casablanca New Balance collab is so cool. It's so cool. So cool. And also, even more cool than that is that she's playing doubles with Venus. That's so cool. That's so cool. I love the I fact mean, that... I play with your idol. It's just awesome. I mean, uh, we haven't even talked about the other side of the draw. Of course, Serena going for 24. Yeah. She hasn't looked great on the clay. She looks... She looks fit, though. She's, oh, she looks She looks great. Yeah. She just hasn't looked great on clay. Her match play has been Dodgy. a little less to... Yeah. She looks very uncomfortable moving on it. And um, she's never been super graceful on the clay because it's never been something that she's you know really excelled on having won the French three times I mean that's terrible <laughs> for her <laughs> but but uh, I mean I'm joking people and I don't at me um but it'll be interesting I think you know I spoke to um a former very good player a couple of weeks ago and she was Virginia baffled. Wade no not Virginia <laughs> although I did talk to Virginia but it wasn't Virginia yeah who was baffled that she wasn't playing more attacking she wasn't mm. up on the baseline and being more aggressive. Stop trying to play clay court tennis. Play Serena tennis. Yeah. Play with patience when you have to, but overall, still go for it. Well, it's interesting you're bringing up Serena tennis because the person I think who is playing Serena tennis right now is Irina Sabalenka. Yeah. I was reading a very, very good column. Who's in this half of the draw. I was going to say she's in the bottom half of the draw. She's the favorite for me to get through to the final. She's got to be. So I read a great piece uh, by a friend of the program, Jerry Maserati, today in The New Yorker, who talked about how watching Barty and Sabalenka in the last couple of weeks, obviously they had a final in Madrid. They had a final, uh, what was they it? They had indoors in Stuttgart. Yeah, indoors. Which Barty won. And then they had outdoors altitude. Yeah, in Madrid. In Madrid. So what's interesting is that you really don't know yeah, those going are... to Paris, which person will be suited more to that style of tennis. For me, it's more ash. Mm-hmm. The altitude helped uh, Sabalenka's flatter, yeah, bigger harder. stroke games. Yeah. Indoors, um, it, that, that was surprising for me because I thought that would have suited uh, uh, Arena a little bit more than Ash. But 
Um, but for me, with the conditions in Paris, it can get windy sometimes. That suits Ash's game a little bit more. This, right. That's why I'm picking her as a favourite. I'm not. There's no guarantee she's going to win the tournament. But well, you have to pick somebody. You have to pick somebody. You got to put your your thing on the line. Your thing. Uh, your ovaries on the line. There you go. Um, I think, as Jerry's piece made clear, they've split their other meetings on other surfaces, and both of those matches that you just referred to, they went three. Mm. And the contrast in style is so fun because. As I said, Arena really does play Serena tennis. She's playing booming first serve, giant ground stroke. She's not Halop. She's not retrieving, right? Um, She's going to play her game. She ain't wanting to play a 10-point rally. No. So I hope that we get a matchup uh, between those two late in the game. So who else in terms of – who else is in that bottom You know, Paula Bedosa, could... who's uh, had a great couple of months. Oh, I love her story. It's you so know, good, yeah. Uh, just a great story. She's in actually the section with Osaka if Osaka makes the third round and uh, if Bedosa – also makes the third round. I feel that Bodosa will win that match. She's a lot more comfortable in clay than Naomi. And coming in with a lot of confidence. Coming in with tons of confidence. So I, I see her moving through that section of the draw if she gets through. And I, I feel like she's probably the best player in that section. Of the draw. Look, there are great players in that section of the draw, but you know we have to put ourselves on the line. Somebody that's a bit of an unknown um, is Bianca Andreescu. Yeah. She's struggled with injuries. Yeah. We know how great she is when she gets into the tournament. She knows she can win a Grand Slam. Um, I would. I am desperate, and would, and I'm hoping that she can. Also, a friend of the Racket Magazine podcast. I'm hoping that she um, can push through, and her injuries. She's got to get her injuries under control. Mentally, she's great. Physically, she's not. Yeah. If she can get them. If she can get the physicality under control, she's, no question, she can. She's going to win multiple Grand Slams. So, 100%. you know, she's somebody in that bottom half of the draw that I feel like. Um, is probably the best player when they're at their best to get through. Kuda Matova is in that section, and mm-hmm. she's had a great couple of months as well. So, you know, you've, got, you've just got all these great young players. Um, Kuznetsova and Azarenka are going to be playing today. We, we, uh, we'll, we'll have the result of that by the time this comes out. I think Svetlana might be the one to, to, to get through that. But what, what a great just, I mean, opening day. Are you kidding? To Love have it. two Grand Slam champions, multiple Grand Slam champions playing against each other. Well, as Brad Gilbert said yesterday in a very good episode of the Craig Shapiro podcast, yeah. you know, there's 10. I mean, it's always kind of the case 10, nowadays. 10, 15 women. 10, 15 women who could win this thing incredibly. And the truth is, like, I'm pumped for all of them, honestly. Yeah. I don't have a, I have some sentimental favorites. As you said, Muguruza, I always love to root for, especially now that she's back with Conchi. Um, I love Arena's fearless tennis. I love Barty's slice of dice. I, you know, there's so many players I absolutely love. So for me, it's more whoever gets to the final. Um, you know, do, who do I like a little bit more, just personality or story wise? It's ne- it's never you know. It's all I, about the personality. It is for me. It's, it's not it's, the meat and potato stuff. No. All right, let's let's touch on the men. Yeah, not I that, guess neither of us like to do that. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, I get it. But it's a good joke. The craziest thing, of course, the the great the three greatest players of all time yep. are in the same section of the draw. That's so funny. Roger's not getting to the semifinal. Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. But uh, and if he does, great story. Especially in those shoes. God, those the shoes, arm you shoes, hate the are shoes are so bad. Um, I think Please, people, listen, if you're listening to this show, I've seen a lot of, of those on shoes up close. A lot of people bought them. I'm sure they look you make them look good, but please, just those are so so bad. Until they get better, you just boycott the on shoes. I don't care if Roger is your favorite or not. Don't You're, get in the on. There. Okay. You said it. Um, uh, of course, nobody. it's interesting that last year everyone was all about Djokovic finally, you know, not finally winning because he's won the French, but Djokovic, Djokovic, Djokovic. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Well, finally guys... beating Nadal at the French. Yeah. And I was like, are you guys smoking crack? The guy has won the tournament 13 times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Until he's... Not breathing, okay, <laughs> or not having a tennis racket in his hand. He is the overwhelming favorite. Yeah. He plays an Aussie in the first round, Alex Popperin, who said some interesting things after he lost the last match mm. to Nadal. Kind of sort of said, you know, I, I realized I didn't have to be as aggressive. I think I could have played with him. He kind of sort of, he didn't give overtly um, overwhelming praise. Oh, I kind of like that. A little chippy. Of, and, and everyone was like, Dude, are you stupid? And yeah, but so that's we're the thing. See, I like, I, I like it. And Alex, Alex is a great player. He's yeah. gonna be a very good. But that's player. the thing: He's if a, you don't have that belief, you've got and it. the press is gonna try to get you to, you know, what are you crazy? Oh, it's here like, we go. You know, you, uh, 
maybe that does accumulate on a player's psyche. If the press is telling you you have no chance, you have to believe you have a chance. Otherwise, why are you walking out there? You know yeah, what I'm saying? Agree. Like, well, but, well um, Alex is going to be taught a really tough lesson in <laughs> yeah. his first round. He probably doesn't have a chance. And I actually am really looking forward to it because he's a great player. So, so that'll be an interesting first round. Yeah. But the fact that Nadal is, you know, in the same section. And can I, can I just put it out there? How the F does the FFT not put him the number two seed. I know we haven't touched the seeds of the French, and but, but, but are you kidding? Yeah. You've got arguably, no, not even arguably, you, he, he is the greatest player that we've ever seen on clay. I mean, I think Chris Everett would take issue no, with that. No, no, no. Her win percentage is higher than Nadal's, and I'm just saying, I'm just saying. But I, yes, the, your greater okay. point is, like Wimbledon even does. Even Chris will admit. Even Chris would admit that. He's he, won 13. Yes. Okay. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. He's won 13 French Opens. Right. And he is seeded three. It's pretty nice. Behind Medvedev, who literally hates clay. He tells everybody who and listen how much he if, hates clay. If Medvedev wins, if Medvedev gets to the semis, I'll be shocked, okay? Because Sitsipas is in he'll his, be shocked. He'll be shocked. Sitsipas <laughs> will, in my opinion, be the one that gets to the final. Probably. On that side of the uh, on the other side. How do you not put him in number two seat? Well, just it's just to... absolutely ridiculous. I don't care. There's not one player that would be upset about that. I think Medvedev would be like, oh, thank God. Yeah, don't Medvedev would probably there. be like, that's fine. Well, I just want to note for everybody who's getting their fingers ready to like tweet like, oh, it's based on the rankings and it's based on the points. Sure. Yes, we know. However, there is precedent when it's a surface specialty because, as everyone knows, most people, Wimbledon uses a grass seeding. Yes. It uses a their own formulation of who should be where in the draw in terms of seeds because they acknowledge that grass is a very, very different beast than your day-in, day-out surface. So I think what you're saying is they, being the FFT, the French Tennis Federation, should, in fact, adopt a similar system. Is that yeah, what you're saying? Yeah, I absolutely Wait do. it for clay so absolutely that you can guarantee do. later matchups. I absolutely that do. So who I, else is in, in the bottom in this, half? In this, in this situation, I'm like, how... <sighs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's baffling. The guy has lost two matches. Right. A hundred and two. Who did he lose? A hundred wins, to? two losses. Soderling and He him. lost to Soderling, and I believe he lost to Novak once. So. I believe. If Rafa and Novak, because we're not really talking about Roger. If he makes a deep run, I'll be obviously thrilled, but Roger there's no chance. Roger would be embarrassed, okay? But. Who's in the bottom half? It's Tsitsipas and Medvedev. Is team in the bottom D- half? Dominic team is in the bottom. Well, that's a that's a not an easy draw for any of them either. No, I mean, Medvedev Zverev is uh, the number number six seed. Yeah, Medvedev's the number two seed. You've got um, you know Tsitsipas at five, and you've got team at four. So you've got two, four, and five, and six, right? And so at the top half of the draw, you've got one. You've got Rublev, who's seven, <clears throat> on the bottom part of that section, and you've got Nadal, and you've got uh, Roger at eight. The funny thing is that Roger and Nadal are like one, like on top of each other in the draw, but they go to different sections uh, of the draw, right. which is really funny. That is really funny. Um, but but yeah, I mean, come on. You, if there if there was ever a time to make an exception, mm-hmm. it was. It was this tournament. I also feel like the French kind of just do whatever the fuck they want anyway. Uh, yeah. Like they just... like, hey guys, we're not we're ha- we're not having the tournament, or hey guys, we're changing the tournament to this date, and players are like, what? Yeah. So the FFT, as you said, done what the fuck they want. Yeah, which I respect. I don't like authority. I like people blowing up the rules. I'm here for the carnage. So why yes. not just lean into it and be like, yeah, we're French. We're gonna do our seating however we see fit. C'est la vie. C'est la vie. Deal with it. Mm. MFers. Yeah, um, so anyway. So I think Rafa is uh, the favourite. I think he was looking a little... Everyone's like, oh, he's looking a little dodgy early on. He's looked dodgy going into the French before. Not, not. He looked pretty dodgy going into the French last time. Remember, Ivan Isovich was like, I don't think Rafa stands a chance. And everyone was like, okay. Okay, good luck. And then the straight set victory. I mean, that was a, I mean, that was a made, rampage he made in the finals look against like a junior, Yeah, And Novak made him look like a junior in the finals of the Australian Open. Surface <laughs> people... Matters. Turns out it matters. Okay. I am excited to see somebody with a one-handed backhand win this tournament. In the men's or the women's? I don't. Are there any credible well, women? Can we? Can we? Speaking of one-handed backhands, can we talk about some of the great stories of the French? And there's no greater story than Carla Suarez Navarro. Oh, Carla! I mean, we call her Rambo Suarez Navarro around our parts because she's usually wearing that amazing headband with that sort of mullety hair. Well, I love Carla. 
obviously coming back uh, a very serious breast cancer. Uh, I wouldn't call it a scare. It was a breast cancer it was, no, she, uh, diagnosis and, and surgery and treatment. And, and can, now she's back. And in the worst little section of the draw, in the draw, because she plays Sloane Stevens, mm. who, well, I, I think she'll win the match against, I can't imagine Carla winning that match just because, wow, not having played a match in so long and she'll be super emotional. Hey, she, in normal circumstances, absolutely, but mm-hmm. not given the preparation. Well, Sloane's she's had. also... And Sloane's played a little better over the last couple of months, come, but yeah. Sloane's like the dark horse for me if she can get through two or three matches. And if she can get through these two or three matches, sure. she could win the bloody tournament. She could. Because she has to She play nearly Carla, did three years ago. And then the winner of that match plays the winner of Karolina Pliskova and Donna Bekic. <laughs> so it's like, that is the small group of like... Uh, I have help. to say, there are a lot of matches. There are so many matches I'm excited to watch. I think I will take a knee and not watch Donna Bekic. Carolina Pushkova. I can't. Well, that's what's funny is that they are really, 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 really good friends, and they practice together all the time in Monaco. <laughs> and they were practicing last week in Monaco, uh-huh. um, Monte Carlo, uh, last week. So they have probably played six thousand practice sets in the last like you know three or four months because they both do spend a lot of time in uh, Monte Carlo. So I think it's hilarious they're playing each other first round. It's not going to be an easy match for either of them. Um, I mean, considering Carolina's last match, she didn't want to game um so she can't exactly be super confident going into the first round and first rounds are always a nightmare for everybody so but more importantly carla rambo we love you we're so happy you're back i'm going to try and get her on the pod in the next uh, month to talk about what she's gone through and um we just wish her all the best i I wish it wasn't against sloan because we like sloan getting through the tournaments yeah um but um hey uh Good, good luck, my friend. We, we just, we're rooting for you and we love you. Let me mention very briefly another one of my all-time favorites, uh, also with one hand and backhand, who has come back to this tournament after an, uh, also a scare with cancer, Francesca Schiavone, oh. who is... He's not playing the tournament. He's not playing the tournament, but is coaching Pet, Petra Martic, yeah. uh, who I love to watch. Petra's got such an athletic, yeah. varied game. She's young Croatian, right, Petra? Or no, she's Serbian? Um, Croatian. And, Petra is now being coached by Francesca, who makes those Italian, you know, very cool, sophisticated spectacles look very cool on the sidelines. It was really neat watching her get to a final and Francesca, you know, cheering her on. It's so great having legends of the game like her, especially ones who've not only won at Roland Garros, Talk but like passion. passion and, you know, her, her run to the, to the championship in, what was it, 2010, was one of the greatest sporting feats I've ever seen against your very close friend, Sam Stosser. I talk about that match all the time because it was so... Such a good example of somebody seizing the moment, not being overwhelmed by the moment, but seizing it and understanding what it meant and playing with courage. It was so cool to watch. Our, um, um, our uh, fashion editorial, uh, what do we call her? Correspondent. Fashion? Correspondent, <laughs> yes. Uh, we're, we're pulling for you, Andrea Pekovic, but she has an unbelievably tough match against Karolina Muchova. That's going to be a great match, In the first actually. round, Muchova's coming match. back from an injury, so... Yeah. Um, I'm sure Petco will be doing her best to grind her opponent to the ground, but we'll see what happens. But overall, look, we're super, super, super pumped that um, the French Open is on. We hope that you enjoy the two weeks of the coverage, um, and hopefully Tennis Channel decides to play Naomi Osaka's post-match interview, because it's the only time we're going to hear from her. Um, And overall, just uh, we hope you enjoy the tournament. We're going to be sitting our asses watching every match, Tweet us, let us know what you think. Not that you ever do, um, and not that I ever do. Um, and um, I guess also we failed to mention Roger Federer back. It's great to see him on the court. We love him. So I think his preparation is all about Wimbledon. It's never been about the French and maybe the US Open. And how many years are we going to be left with these great champions like Serena, like Roger, Venus? You know, um, let's just value them while they're here. And let's, I, let's I'm value, them. Let's value Nadal maybe winning 14 and asking to have that statue redone. It's really polarizing. Half the people I see are like, it's really cool. Jesse Kotansky, Andrea's boyfriend, he texted me the other day. He was like, it's actually really cool in person. And I was like, it looks to me too much like the Ronaldo sculpture where they tried to... <laughs> no, no. Nothing is that bad. It was... That Ronaldo sculpture literally looks like somebody... Paint it, said, can you sculpt Ronaldo <laughs> not knowing what Ronaldo looked like? Just do it with your eyes closed. Yeah. I don't know. That Rafa statue is... I, statues are cool, but woof. Uh, no, no, no merci pour moi. 
That's all I have to say. Um, but uh, yes, I am rooting for somebody on the men's side to win with a one-handed backhand. I hope it's Stacey Passer. I am not somebody who's into tradition. I don't want to see these old guys win more Grand Slams. I don't care about that. I want a new French Open champion. Um, but, you know, got to give it to Rafa. If he's in the finals, especially against somebody I don't like, I will root for him. That is my conseil de dise. We'll see. All right. Well, okay. thank you, Renee. This is our last podcast together, probably for a time, until I get over yes, to Europe. Yes, I'm heading over to Europe. So au revoir, everybody. Uh, au revoir, Caitlin. Au revoir. But, uh, to everybody out there that listens to our podcast, honestly, we really love that you do. Thank you, and uh, we hope you enjoyed today's. Thanks, guys. And that's it for this episode of the Racket Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Our host is Renee Stubbs. Our co-host and producer is me, Caitlin Thompson. Music by internationally renowned DJ Stretch Armstrong. Thanks to Tim Ruggieri and the team at Acast. Find us at racketmag.com slash podcast and subscribe to us at any of your favorite podcatchers. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.